0: welcome to hrn happy hour it's five o'clock somewhere and somewhere is still the internet as we kick off our first episode of 2021 We have something really special to share with you all today, which I'll introduce in a moment. It's a preview of a brand new show. I just wanted to say welcome back and thank you all for sticking with us. My name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network, and we are so proud to have made it through 2020 with all of your generous support. Thank you for listening, and thanks for being a part of everything that we do. Today's special episode is a drop from another new HRN series called Fields. Fields is a deep dive into urban agriculture and all of the farmers who choose to work in the shadow of skyscrapers. It's produced by Melissa Metrick and wife Marshall, and you can find the series on your favorite podcast listening app or on heritageradionetwork.org. It's my pleasure now to hand it over to Melissa and wife to introduce the series. Please remember to subscribe to Fields anywhere you listen to podcasts.
1: My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Seeds
2: are tiny and powerful. When we think about the origins of seeds and where they came from, it was always this idea of seeds as part of the common.
3: These plants are a way into understanding urban ecosystems as every bit as lively as what we might kind of stereotype as a wild or a natural environment. These spontaneous urban plants are living here in our shadow in the cities and they're thriving and they're... Not always doing what we want them to do. They have their own agency. Um, and doing that through artwork, I think it's just, it's just another way to filter the landscape and to help people focus on something they might not otherwise focus on.
4: A perfect flower is non-binary.
3: Great topic. Obviously, that's my whole life. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I'm, glad you, oh my I'm
2: glad you're doing seeds.
5: You're listening to Fields, the podcast, with
4: Melissa Metrick
5: and Wythe Marshall. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working to grow the field of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, to feed the hungry, to green the city, and for entirely other reasons, which we'll discuss today. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in New York City, one technology used to grow it, or one critical element inside of it. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the big city. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn.
4: I work within the Nutrition and Food Studies Department in NYU. I teach a class called Introduction to Urban Agriculture, and I manage the NYU Urban Farm Lab. I've been a grower for over 12 years.
5: And I'm an anthropologist who writes about urban agriculture and conducts research for Cornell. I love living things, I love cities, and most of all, I love talking to people and eating free food. One note, we've been working on this podcast now for over a year, taping a lot of interviews with wonderful farmers and other experts. That means that some material predates COVID-19. We're still including it because these conversations are as important as ever, maybe more so. But don't worry if a guest doesn't talk about how their farm has pivoted in 2020. That just means we need to have them back on soon for an update.
4: In this episode, we will enter the world of seeds. We will speak to seed keepers who work with seeds to understand the world around them, their culture, and other cultures. Seeds as mirrors.
5: We're also going to talk about seeds and time. Seeds have always been a metaphor for change. They start small, sometimes incredibly tiny, and then boom, a few months later, they're plants, sometimes much bigger than we are. But this change, as amazing as it is, pales beside the act of time traveling that seeds do just by remaining viable for years, sometimes centuries or even millennia. So seeds as time travelers...
4: Today you're going to hear from two artists, Ellie Irons and Am Prococo, who work with seeds within their project called the Next Epic Seed Library, as well as Ken Green, one of the founders of Hudson Valley Seed Library, who now works on a Native American seed sanctuary through Seed Shed.
5: Before we get started, some basics on seeds. Pretty much everyone knows that seeds are baby plants. And they work just like baby animals in a sense. There's an embryo, which is the baby organism, and there's a food source, which in a seed is called the endosperm, and then there's a seed coat to protect it.
4: Now it gets interesting, because if you have an embryo from another kind of organism, usually you can't make it go dormant. Store it somewhere far from the parent, possibly for years, in some cases a thousand years, then move it around and later break its slumber and grow that organism in a totally different place and different time than it originated from.
5: So the plant, um, as a species, can sort of move out over an area throughout time. You can also have lots of seeds, scatter them, some of them get eaten, and some of them grow. So it's a different way of sort of thinking about reproduction. It doesn't involve a parent in the way that we think of parenting as being about care, But it involves sort of interacting with an environment and the other things in that environment. And if you're a farmer, you're definitely caring for seeds. You didn't give birth to them, of course, but you are helping them become the plant that you're interested in. And we're going to talk to a farmer who's a really amazing seed saver and has worked a lot with seeds for different reasons. And he's going to tell at least one story that's about sort of working with seeds, not to sell uh, food and make money, but but to help a community continue cultural connection to a plant. And we're also actually going to start off by talking to some artists who work with seeds for a really different reason, which is to kind of highlight plants in urban environments. There's plants all around you. their seeds are everywhere. even if you live in a big polluted noisy city, there are plants just growing, which on the surface is kind of like, yeah, no, I, I get that. But in another sense, I mean take a minute to go outside look at a plant. Even if you live in the middle of New York City, it might really surprise you, the variety of plants on your block. And if you think about their seeds, they're still doing this genetic game of kind of moving around and moving through time, and they're coming from all over the world because they come with people.
4: Okay, so now it's time to meet our artists, Ellie Irons and Anne Prococo.
3: So I'm Ellie, and I am currently a PhD student at Rensselaer Polytechnic in arts practice. And I work with urban ecology and socially engaged art, so kind of social interaction as a way to get people to think differently about urban ecology. And often we make art in the process.
6: So I'm Anne Percoco. I'm an artist. I use a lot of found materials in my work. I'm interested in abandoned spaces. And by, you know, walking around some abandoned lots and stuff, I started getting interested in the plants that were growing there. So
3: weeds. I mean, they're fascinating beings aesthetically, once you stop to look at them. I mean, it's so easy in a plant blind society that is more focused on the, you know, detritus and products of humans, um, to not filter for plants and just to see them at the as this wall of green and um Once you use an art project like the next Epoch Seed Library to start helping folks filter for seeing plants in the urban landscape, you just start seeing them everywhere.
6: It's a seed library that's dedicated to weeds, so wild urban plants that self-seed and that most people think of as a nuisance, but we point out lots of ways where they are beneficial depending on the context,
3: the way the project kind of took shape is that we, you know, started out just realizing that both of us were saving seeds because we were working these plants and, you know, either wanted to plant them again or were using them to kind of share with other people. And so we formed a library and it kind of became a really nice meeting point for folks to experience both our interest in the way urban ecosystems work and kind of an expanded notion of arts practice that involves workshops and walks and community seed packaging events. And then eventually even kind of longer term interventions like deep time seed burial and sculptures and that sort of thing.
5: So basically, Anne and Ellie are using different kinds of art practices to show us plants in everyday life, show us plants all around us and how important they are. And that really starts with seeds. You can get people to save seeds and then grow from seed and sort of experience this um, common kind of organism in a whole new way.
4: A lot of people in urban areas don't have the knowledge to seed save, so they're not seed saving. But these people that come from other cultures that have that knowledge, that right. that knowledge is still prevalent, they're still seed saving. And, and right? many
5: people are plant blind, so they're not even thinking about it. Food yes. just arrives magically at the grocery store. Whereas I think that connects to like Ann saying, let's at least think about literally what are plants. There's plants all around you. Just look outside. There's some plants somewhere on your street. And, like, that's the very, very first step if, you've, if you're if you totally removed from this world of just, like, oh, my God, there are plants all around me. Why, why are they here? How are they alive? Um, all the way to, you know, these more sophisticated conversations around, like, which heirloom tomato is the best.
4: Yeah. But also, um, where are these plants in context to the larger environment and world?
5: Totally, yeah. Right, right, right. Not on their own, but but as part of my social world, the environment that we all share But even farmers who work with seeds all the time sometimes don't think a lot about where the seeds are coming from. Ken had his own take on being plant blind.
2: So I'm Ken Green, and I've been working with seeds in different ways over the last 16 years. Uh, I started uh, by starting a seed library uh, when I was still working in a public library. That was the first seed library in the country that Then I developed into the Hudson Valley Seed Company with my partner, Doug. Uh, And then from there, I've also started a nonprofit called Seed Shed that works more on seed justice. It's probably important to note,
5: most farmers don't save seeds for a lot of crops. They're buying seeds every year from big seed companies. A seed library isn't really a farmer thing necessarily in terms of a commercial farmer. It's an institution that a bunch of people are running to gather seeds and have them on hand so that different people can come and use them.
2: So I really enjoy looking at seeds from all different angles and exploring what seeds mean in our lives.
4: Yeah. I mean, that's so interesting because so many people are so focused on the growing techniques of the food that they're actually eating. And yet, mm-hmm. how many people question the growing techniques of where they're getting their seeds from,
2: right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a mind blown moment all the time when I'm like, well, where do you like, you know, you have an organic farm, let's just say. And so most organic farmers are doing it because their values align with that type of land use. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not just doing it because they think they're going to make more money or, you know, for the most part, or they think it's cool. Like it's more work. It's more complicated. You have to be a little bit passionate and like have an extra level of caring about the earth and soil and the environment to choose to become certified organic. So then why would a certified organic farmer buy seeds that aren't certified organic and support a farm that's actually using far more toxic chemicals in their farming practices you're allowed to use more chemicals for something that's not edible on a seed farm. You know, why would they give their money to that type of practice that goes against what they believe in in terms of their own land use? It really goes back to the 1930s or 1940s of the introduction of hybrids and the way that the seed industry started to consolidate uh, around thinking about profit. Um, And how to make more money off of seeds, that really led to this manufactured invisibility of where seeds come from.
5: As you can probably tell, Ellie and Anne and Ken all think a lot about the history of agriculture. So not just what are practices today, why do we breed plants the way we do, but where did people used to get seeds from? How did they preserve the qualities that they wanted in plants? And that's led them to go back to seed saving and thinking differently
2: about plant breeding for the most part the bigger players aren't breeding for urban agriculture
4: yeah yeah yeah
2: they're not thinking about rooftop conditions and the exposure and the wind and you know the shallow soils you know there's a lot of things that we can do through selection to improve varieties for these types of microclimates or niche climates Mm -hmm. so we love the idea that a rooftop farmer could get one of our varieties from us and say, here's what's working for me. Now I want to tweak it a little bit to make it really work for rooftop growing. So why why were these other corns bred to be so tall? And why were they bred so that they hold the corn higher on the stalk? It's all about industrial agriculture and the size of the equipment. Uh You want the corn to be high off the ground. The combine can come through. If the corn is low to the ground like it is on these dwarf varieties, The combine can't actually harvest them. Uh, And so, you know, we tend to just accept the variety for what it is and be like, I guess that's just the way that variety, you know, is. But we've been cultivating and selecting varieties as like humanity for 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. And any variety you pick up, you can start to trace back and say, okay, why was this Decision made? Why was it changed in this way? Why was it selected for this? And, you know, depending on what part of that agricultural history you're intersecting with, you can actually start to understand that plants that we depend on for food weren't just made that way. You can't go back a thousand years and find the same plant yeah. um, with the same traits. And so those historical factors social factors when we really start to dig into seeds we see that you know racial equity economic equity social justice politics war like all of these different social factors also shape the plants it's not just a like sort of biological imperative of like what performs better or worse
1: mm-hmm. but the
2: way that agriculture has changed land use has changed populations have changed also changed plants
5: I think that is the pushback that, again, is very valid against GMOs or now against people saying, oh, we have this gene edited crop. that's going to be great. It's not even transgenic is the unintended consequence or just or just fortifying that system where we're just growing a lot of one thing. Yeah, that's the like to me, if that's a major flaw in the system, then changing out that one thing doesn't really fix it overnight. Yeah.
4: So is that actual problem making seed a commodity?
5: Similarly, Ellie and Anne are also thinking about timescales of thousands of years and big changes in agriculture.
3: Basically, we heard some of these news stories about um, seeds being regenerated after thousands of years of being dormant. So the um, Jerusalem date palm seed that was found in ruins in the Middle East and then sprouted into a new date palm after 2,000 years. It's just And then yeah. it's now reproducing. I remember <laughs> And that. it's kind of a wow. strain of palm um, yeah, that doesn't exist anymore. So we heard that story and a few others like that, um, and it's just really captured our imagination. So we started thinking about how to frame that so people could imagine burying a seed now and having it unearth in a new climate future, and like what that would be like, and what kinds of seeds you might choose to bury, and pointing out that we're surrounded by seeds that have already adapted to live with us, and they're actually already kind of living in the future, because cities are hotter, and they're more polluted, and they're more fragmented, and these are the plants that can deal with that. So what happens if we bury them and imagine them waking up in 100 years or something? And the way they travel through time is basically that they stay alive with a very small amount of energy. They've just got this little tiny germ in them and they're not dead. They look dead to us. They look like an object, but they're alive. And then they they hang out in the dark in cool, dry places or frozen places until they get the signal that it's time to grow again.
4: And so Ellie and Anne are incorporating time-traveling seeds into their art.
6: Right now, we're working on a project called Lawn Redisturbance Laboratory, where we t- take a section, a one by one meter section of a very institutional type of uniform lawn, and remove the turf, and then basically see what grows there from the soil seed bank.
3: That project gets at something that I would say generally about working with seeds is that they're so small and there's so many of them and they're so easy to overlook but if you slow down and like really study them they're just incredible one thing that the lawn disturbance laboratory gets at is the fact that they can travel through time which when you start talking to people about that it just it's kind of mind-blowing so we got inspired um to do some of these deep time seed burial projects this
4: attention to seeds and deep time and the ancient past it isn't just for fun. It's for understanding the world we are going to have to live in, a world that's changing rapidly, and what that's going to look like, what plants are going to live with us.
6: Cities so are have sort of like climate change happening faster. Mm-hmm. Because of heat island effect?
3: Yeah. 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 Heat yeah. island effect and habitat fragmentation and have our, in some cases heavier levels of toxicity. Yeah, I've heard urban ecologists say these plants are living in the future. <laughs> you know, like twenty years ahead or something like that. Huh, I'd never I'm traveling heard that. again. That's so interesting.
5: And by the way, heat island effect is the fact that cities are often a lot warmer than the rural area around them because of human activity. Basically, if you pave over soil and cut down trees, then you're reducing moist, cool landscape, and you're replacing it with often impervious surfaces like asphalt that are also really good at absorbing heat.
3: There's definitely some plants that are known as invasive nuisances that are, you know, the headline is they're shifting their, their range north. They're coming for you. Um, but I think yeah. it really, I mean, it is happening.
5: But at the same time that some humans are beginning to worry more and more about what plants near them are native or not native, how plants are adapting, who's coming for whom, there are other people who are just trying to keep the plants they've had for a long time, they've cultivated, alive. So, this whole question of who sees which plants and the sort of valence, the emotion we assign to them, is really interesting when you look at someone who's growing seeds and thinking about native or local types of seeds uh, for completely different reasons. So, not to raise awareness about climate change in our environment. But, well, here's Ken Green.
2: Sometimes seeds are endangered, they might disappear. They're significant to a certain culture or a certain ritual or a certain cultural food way. And they don't currently have a home that is able to take care of them. So the sanctuary is a place to bring those seeds in during this in between time to say, you know, we have the resources here and the skills here on our seed farm at this sanctuary to care for these seeds and make sure they're not going to disappear.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: During which time, We need to do work in whatever community that they came from to say, how can we support you so that when these seeds come back to you, you have what you need to care for them? Sometimes that's land. Sometimes that's infrastructure. Sometimes that's skill building. It's so based on the history of that community, what type of oppression they've endured, whether they're... Have a land base or not? Why they have a land base or not? um, How much interest there is? uh, You know, there's a whole lot of factors that go into that. So, with the Native American Seed Sanctuary, we began working with the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network and Haudenosaunee community in Aquasasne, which is in northern New York. It's actually half in Canada and half in in northern New York. Um, Identifying varieties that needed Sort of more immediate help um, and a sanctuary to be in, while we work with them to develop what they need, and we do things the way that they would like us to do them. We work with the varieties that they're expressing need help, and then all of those seeds go back to the community. Some of those seeds become seed stock for future growouts, and in many cases with the corn and beans, it also becomes food that can be part of ceremony, that can be part of cultural foodways.
5: And Ken puts this thoughtfulness about what seeds mean into all the things that he does.
2: So when we were writing our descriptions and researching our varieties, we would really kind of try and go deep um, and really figure out you know, where in the world did this come from and what what culture really put in most of the work over time of developing this variety before it came into our hands. And how do we honor those seed origins? I would say that the the deeper we went with it, the more complicated it got. Yes. Um, and when you think about sort of identity and culture and this idea that, in many ways, the modern seed industry has all been all about erasing culture from seeds, redefining seeds as a commodity taking them out of their cultural context and just turning them into a profit driven inanimate object. But then when we started learning these stories and telling these stories, we also started having these moments where we were like, well, are these our stories to tell? When we sit down to eat, all of us are sitting down to a global plate. There's very few foods, you know, on our plates that just came from, you know, your personal ancestry. So, we're in this Seesaw of everything is global, and yet we want to honor the origins and and the culture of where these seeds come from without being extractive, without you know tokenizing. Yeah. Um, and how do we do that? So, Seed Shed, the nonprofit that I started, sort of came out of exploring these ideas of seed ethics and seed origins and seed stories, and really saying maybe the seed company you know, isn't the best place to really deeply explore these issues. Mm -hmm. And that for a lot of this, maybe, you know, I'm not always the right leader of for that. And that when we really get into it, there's it's better to work within the communities that those seeds came from to figure out what do those communities actually need? What do the seeds mean? to them? How do they want their own stories told and represented? What does seed sovereignty mean um, for them? And, you know, it's it's a, it's a difficult place, a sticky place to be in as a seed company, and we're doing our best to honor that. And so Rowan White, who I've been friends with and worked with since in the beginning of the library when she um, had her senior thesis about Haudenosaunee, Um, seed varieties. We became friends. And so she now um, runs the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network. And so we started doing more work together to explore these questions cross-culturally and really start thinking about what does it mean to share seeds ethically, share these stories in a responsible way, and actually support seed sovereignty. So the Native American Seed Sanctuary Project really grew out of these questions in a way, you know, looking for a different model. There are other white-led, white-centered organizations in the past and currently that have worked on preserving. Um, I don't know if you can see my air quotes, um, but preserving seeds, uh, <laughs> But it's done in this way of white people doing something that they think is valuable for another culture, mm-hmm. um, rather than the other way around, which is saying, starting with listening and saying, we have some resources and we have interest in this, you know, how can we support seed sovereignty within your community? It's a very different way of working with seeds than the commercial model. And we've been really just lucky that the Hudson Valley Farm Hub, um, which is a nonprofit uh, farm project, Just up the road from us, really wanted to be part of this uh, sanctuary project and has been um, allowing us to use land um, on their farm. Is funding the project, gives us lots of technical support. And you know, when I need to drive 130 posts into the ground, the the Hudson Valley Farm Hub farm crew comes and helps me do that so that my arms aren't falling off. (laughs) Um, So it's really been a really incredible partnership between different cultures, between different types of farms because they do a lot of uh, commodity uh, trials and commodity farm type work at the Hudson Valley Farm Hub. And within that, there's this sanctuary with sacred varieties growing and it helps them redefine and understand their relationship to seeds and plants. It helps us manage the program and grow really healthy seeds to return to rematriate to Aquasasne, And it hasn't been without complication. A lot of the work is about trust building um, as much as it is about identifying the varieties and learning how to grow them and figuring out the logistics of of sharing that. And actually, just this morning, we had the seed ceremonies um, for planting. Um, And so... Five of our partners from Aquasasne came down to the farm to hold the ceremony, um, and we had, you know, we met and we talked about what's the big picture here. What are we trying to do? You know, how are we communicating about it? What's going well? What's still difficult? Um, how is this being received in other Indigenous communities close to Aquasasne? How, you know, how is it being perceived? It's absolutely one of my favorite things that I'm working on, and absolutely one of the most. Um, sort of heart, heart-centered and emotional seed, seed projects that I'm working on.
4: So this story is really powerful for a few different reasons. And I think one of them is that seeds can connect you through time in different ways, especially culturally. But the you is really important there. It's not going to have the same impact to look at a seed if you don't necessarily have a cultural connection to it or you don't know you have a cultural connection to it or that cultural connection was taken away from you. Because talking about what changes in a plant or in our food and what stays the same, talking about what's a native plant and what's an introduced plant and talking about why we do different things plants depending on our culture has to do with a much larger picture and story
2: well i mean for us we felt like the only way we could really do this was one to make sure that the project is being led by the community yeah um and and that the decisions about what how things are grown and what happens to the harvest are is not our decision we're not saying what we think is right or good mm-hmm. to do with it. So I kind of feel like that that decision from the beginning was part of what started building trust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that we weren't coming in with our own ideas of what we thought should be done.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheeselandia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese, and it's even good enough just to snack on. As a Cheeselandia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to cheeselandia.com to learn more. And if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at cheeselandia.
5: Well, I think something for across all four of the seed interviews, they're all to me um, about context. So we have these plants, the seeds are really amazing for all these reasons. But what it comes down to is what do we kind of expect out of plants? And when we look at plants, do we even see them at all? Like Anna and Ellie kept bringing up, you know, with weeds, you don't really see weeds. You don't think about where their seeds are, unless you're trying to get rid of them. And so it's a really different question to just make people look at them a different way and say, you know, we're not trying to get rid of them or not. We're just looking around our city and noticing actually the city's full of plants.
4: Yeah, I think that's the larger point. The idea of plant blindness, urban ecology, blindness, if that makes exactly. sense. yeah. You know, what Ann and Ellie were talking about is that these weeds can actually create an ecosystem. And I literally saw this on the side of the road the other day, biking to Fort Tilton Beach, biking down this bike path on the 4th of July, And we saw tons of, what was it, Queen's Anne's Lace. We saw tons of chicory. We saw tons of all of these flowers. They were beautiful. And they were just like lining the sidewalk. And there was probably tons of pollinators around. The only thing that's right there is, you know, huge expressway. Yeah. And all of these other plants, right? And then we went back there yesterday, which is July 28th. And we see it all chopped down all in these plastic garbage bags on the side of the road. And it's just gone. And it's just like that whole ecosystem is now gone.
5: So you can think of it on the one hand, people like Ken are working to help cultures that want to keep seeds that are important to them around. So keep the local, native, traditional uh, varieties in, in circulation, being grown, being seeded and passed on and appreciated And on the other hand, you have artists who are really trying to reframe, who are trying to make you maybe think differently about things like weeds, seeds that nobody necessarily wants, that aren't quote unquote native to an area, but are introduced there and are thriving there because maybe that area has changed over time. Ellie and her baby had thoughts.
3: Another valence that I hear all the time is that they're Oh, they're not native, and because they're not native, therefore they're bad. It's this equation of like native, not native or introduced always means out of balance or always means invasive. And so often in the city, they're living in places that are already damaged and where whatever we think of as a native habitat is so far from being present anymore. Like their lamb's quarter growing in a place that used to have Marsh cordgrass, like that cordgrass, can't grow yeah. there anymore. It's no longer an estuary.
6: I read something where Rebecca it said that environmental problems are actually cultural problems, and I think that's true. So in that way, it makes mm. it makes sense to try to affect some kind of uh, change in people's minds through through
3: art. Just like we're reminding people, you know that not all plants are the same and get over your plant blindness. And let's see the differences between all these different plants that make up this wall of green. There's context and times for trying to maintain a landscape in a certain way and context and times for appreciating what spontaneous urban plants will do, you know, on their own. And one thing I, you know, people say, but that's an invasive plant. And I try to step back and say, This is a plant that acts invasively in some contexts and we need to look at the context it's in and decide if it's worth the time, effort, and potentially toxicity dumped into the landscape to push back on it so that we can do something else that we've deemed to be more important in that area or more beneficial, Mm. or if it's a time to weigh the balances and say, you know what, there's a lot more balance, you know, a lot more benefits that will come out of not even letting. It's not a like, okay, you can do that. It's like, okay, I'm going to work with the landscape rather than in opposition to what this plant wants to do here. But if we're gardening and trying to grow food or something like that, there's plenty of situations when you're going to want to have some interaction with the weedy plant population that's not going to be like, do whatever you want. (laughs) I think the thing that's interesting and really frustrating is that often cities are putting money into killing these plants or cutting them back and throwing them in the trash. I mean, I've seen a dump truck outside of a vacant lot, just like full of greenery, just compacted, just like it was trash. Um, So the question of like what we spend our resources on and what the public perception is in terms of messiness and danger. Um, Like in Troy, what one of the, that's where I'm doing my, PhD work at, at RPI, um, one of the regulations on the books is that, um, your wild plants, weeds, what they call them weeds, your noxious beings can't be over six inches tall because it creates a waste nuisance that can, it actually says harbor filthy deposits. (laughs) So there's this like fear that somehow weeds over six inches are associated with, um, blight and, Dirtiness, and it it really becomes this thing where it starts, especially when you get into the dialogue around weeds as invaders from other countries. It starts to have these really troubling um, parallels with the way that we talk about people who move, and that's why often mm. when we talk about introduced plants, we'll talk about them as migrant plants. Like climate change is changing habitats; plants are moving around, people are moving around, yeah. and. Um, we need to really think carefully about how we welcome or don't welcome these beings. I've heard it echoed um, also in terms of the um, outbreak of populism and nationalism in the United Kingdom, Brexit, and this kind of um, folks you might otherwise be like, environmental activists, I agree with them. And then wait, there's this strange nativism of wanting to shut down the borders and save a nostalgic vision of the countryside and in the moment of climate crisis where the idea that you would try to roll backwards to get back to something that the earth system is telling us we can't have anymore at the same time you're shutting down your borders to refugees it's just
5: it's just messed up so once again plants have some relation to human identity Including identity as a grower, as a seed breeder. And that's really where we want to leave this episode.
2: Like with the Mohawk red bread corn, that was the first few years of the corn that we did. There were only two ears left of that corn.
1: Wow. Wow. Wow.
2: Ro- Rowan had produced about six pounds, I think. We were entrusted with those six pounds, which was like heavy. <laughs> yeah. um, and over the years, we've produced about four thousand pounds of that corn. Wow! All of that has gone back to Aquasasna, and in that moment of exchange, when we're bagging everything and loading the trailer, and you know, the leadership from Aquasasna are getting ready to drive home. You know, there's like a letting go for me uh, of like I've been loving over and worrying over. <laughs> Yeah. You know the corn and and the grow out for the season, and it's it's being rematriated, it's going home, and at that point, it's no longer mine. And the way that most of us have been raised is this real idea of of ownership that mm-hmm. something under your control or something that you're doing is is owned by you, and it becomes like almost like part of your identity, yeah. um, that like that strength of ownership. So there's a lot of trying to change habits and break these internal mechanisms that really don't help us understand food and seed and the way that it could be shared. You know, there's moments when I feel that tug of attachment and I feel that want of control. And we all feel that it's, it's, it's something just, you know, that we all have to work on. And I, I'm i always like, well, what's going to happen to it? Like, what you know, what are you going to do with it? But it's not up to me. That's not, you know, that's not why we're doing it. And so some of it is feeding people and some of it is being part of ceremony and some of it is being given away and some of it becomes seed stock for them to grow out on their own farms in their own community to produce more seed trying to change that in any way um, would really dishonor the partnership. Um, and so I'm not saying that's the only model or that there aren't other ways to, to partner, but for me, that's the only way that I feel comfortable um, doing this work.
5: Can add one more thought on plants and identity seeds and identity that was really powerful
2: These are always a reflection of what's going on in the larger community. So as as there's been more awareness about different types of families and different ways of having relationships and that love is love, I feel like we're seeing, oh, like this is reflected in the plant world as well. And maybe we haven't paid attention to that before. This has been on my mind a lot with all of the super restrictive abortion um, laws going to play. Is about controlling reproduction. Yeah. So, you know, there's this this ongoing fight to control reproduction. And that's been going on with plants for a long time, too. And when we look at genetic engineering and hybridization and a lot of these other techniques, it's all about controlling reproduction. You know, we were talking a little bit about identity and politics and farming and seed. Being a queer farmer in the beginning really felt like we felt like, are we going to fit in um, to this farming world? Which yeah. the farming world, like we started in, felt very white and very straight. I think, in a way, you know, choosing seeds or being chosen by seeds, there's a very queer kind of. Role that I feel like we've played in the larger food industry, and being this kind of weird farm of you know trying to rethink how how seeds are grown in our region and yeah. new ways of sharing them, and I've been really excited to see more thought and more work coming out around queer botany, and yeah. really starting you know from the beginning of being a seed saver for me, I was like here's the Binary that we impose on plants of male and female. Hmm. And we treat all plants into this binary system, even though there's lots of plants that really don't fit into that binary system. It was just sort of the, the early straight white men who were trying to create a structure for understanding plant reproduction. Yeah. We're using the model that Seemed the most human to them and imposing them on the plants. And so I've always just had these feelings around, you know, well, that doesn't really make sense. Like this this plant has a perfect flower that has all of its parts inside its one flower and can pollinate itself and reproduce. Like, why are we calling that male and female? Mm -hmm. This plant has two different flowers on one stem that need to pollinate with other two different flowers on other stems Is that really like a male plant and a female plant? No, it's not. Every plant has both.
4: The idea of of us putting these binary terms on plants in the environment and, you know, having plants being male or female.
2: Mm. There's a zine that came out recently from Interlocking Roots, which is a queer farming group called Perfect Flower, where they were really delving deeper into these of feelings that I've been having over the years Yeah. um, to really say, you know, is this really the best way to understand plant biology with this this binary? Um, And also, you know, how has this affected our food system and the way that we share seeds and the way that we view seeds and the way that we view food?
4: Most plants aren't male and female, you know, and him kind of Putting that into our cultural context today and all of the political things that we're kind of dealing with, with, um, you know, non-binary bathrooms, um, the right of, you know, sexual reproduction or not, you know, like, like the, the control going back to that control.
5: Just so immediately the idea that you would look at plants and think about your own identity through their kind of lens it seems really simple now that he, that he pointed out some of these things so like eloquently. But yeah, I mean, it is something that, yeah, I feel like, okay, I know sort of how plants work. But I hadn't really thought of what that would mean if you if you were personally, if that was a big part of your identity, questioning these gender binaries in humans. That, of course, as soon as you're learning stuff about plants, you'd be like, oh, yeah, this is like rat. This is, you know, how nature works. It's not that simple. It's not, you know, this nuclear Freudian family. Yeah, exactly. It's not. It's not. It's it's never,
4: not, it's not. not As more people are growing or people are growing from different backgrounds, from different identities and how the culture is changing of how we're looking at plants and how we're looking at propagating these plants and how we're looking at sexual reproduction. Just the idea of how we're looking at nature and how if we're putting our cultural concepts on it or not.
5: Yeah. I mean, I think the idea of context here is really interesting where like we, like in a meta way, we wouldn't, I think have ever asked about his sexuality. It was just not something that I was going to ask him about because, and I wasn't thinking about. So when he brought up his experience of becoming a professional farmer and just thinking differently about plants, you know, why he does what he does and how he thinks and how that very understandably like is a big part of his life and his identity. And, um, in the, you know area where he lives now you know that when he first moved to a more rural setting like was worried about oh my god am i gonna fit in because as you say there's this image in american culture of farming as this kind of Mm -hmm. whatever old school Mm -hmm. i I don't know i mean or or am i gonna be
4: in danger
5: right yeah 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 and i I definitely think in terms of i'm learning like like especially i've been reading a lot more about farming and blackness because of the pigford cases and the fact that the the United States government has basically as a policy since the civil war driven black people off their land and so that has changed what farming has looked like because it, it worked you know they were very successful at it for over 100 years so nowadays you know farming while black to you know Leophen's book i mean that title alone is is really calling out the context immediately and saying like yo this is going to be different than yeah. farming while white because yeah. for many reasons beyond like normal systemic racism, like yeah. there's been especially bad yes. systemic racism in agriculture. Yeah. And that's something that until the Pickford cases, I hadn't really thought of. I thought of rural and urban and thought there'd be a kind of similar mix and similar kinds of racism. But mm-hmm. I, I think these questions of what it feels like to get up and grow, that is exactly why I do this podcast. To me. Yeah. I find it so interesting how different people think of themselves in relation to plants and the environment. Um, yeah.
4: But especially, like, for Ken, farming while queer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like um, and specifically breeding. And yes. specifically doing this sexual reproduction with plants.
5: Thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much to Ken Green and Prococo and Ellie Irons for joining us today.
4: Field's theme music is by Sam Tyndall.
5: Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Warner.
4: Fields is powered by SimpleCast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.